Witty, thought-provoking, and uplifting, Southern Soul Livestream is a program that you'll invite your friends over to watch every week where you'll learn about interesting guests and get to share in their fascinating experiences. Tune in each Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern to connect with guests from across the generations and to laugh with our eclectic hosts who are as charming as they are talented. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's our host, Calvin. We have a great show tonight. Right behind me, you see the runner show. We always get started with a little fun and a little good time. And yeah, thank you, Tamika, for reminding me um, that Tanya won. Tanya, um, you'll get an email after me, uh, after the show, and I'm going to mail you a copy. Tamika, okay, you get to choose. Does she get a copy of the Southern Soul Journal or the Starting Your Podcast Workbook? Which one should we mail to Tanya? How about we let Tanya pick? Tanya, which yeah. one you put in the chat? And then I'll email you after the show, or you could email me, and I'll have that mailed out to you. So, as I was saying, we have an awesome show tonight, starting your own podcast. Got it. And I'm excited because I saw this lady speak almost a year ago, and I was speechless. I was quiet because as a father of an eight-year-old, I'm very, very passionate about young boys. As a man who grew up with various role models, my father, my grandfather, my uncles, the village, we all grew up at the end of a dirt road. And I jokingly describe, I grew up on a dead end dirt road and my son grows up in a cul-de-sac. And how much has changed? Back then, I had so many role models. This one friend was good with the gift of gab, and this other friend was good at fixing stuff, and my uncle was good at fighting, and my grandfather was good at just being, well, his nickname was Preacher, but he never went to church, so I'll let y'all figure that out. And my dad, well, you know, he met my mom and Charmed, and, you know, he cre helped create me, so the rest is history. But I've always been passionate about the boys, and we live during a very unique time where I believe, personally, that our boys are in trouble. But who can I find to talk about that? Well, when I stumbled upon Dr. Christina, my heart got excited because I was like, she gets it. I want to introduce to you guys Dr. Christina, but before I do, I forgot to remind y'all is that everything we do here at Southern Soul is supported by volunteers. Honestly, people like you. And throughout the show, um, you can see um, right there um, where it says Southern Soul Thursday. You can go there. You can donate to the show. You can donate monthly, you know, $5 or whatever. Anything essentially shows us that as an, art or as an artist, as a creator, right, this is the creative um, industry, that you appreciate the work that we create. And Dr. Christina knows that's a lot of work that we put into this show. We don't just show up and talk about it, but we try to make sure we ain't scripted, but we try to have a good time. Yeah. So we appreciate your support. But before, but without any further ado, let's go to Dr. Christina. Dr. Christina, welcome. How are you? Wonderful. I tell you, that music, gosh, that was fun. I didn't know how ignorant I was with titles. <laughs> and I said, LL Cool J. Ooh, that was a... 
Yeah. We, but we, I'm thinking there were some similarities in hit that beat because I'm listening to the beat, Rock the, I think it's Rock the Bell. Uh-huh. I'm telling you, go back and listen to that song because there are some similarities there. I actually agree with you. It was definitely the same time frame when LL was in his peak. That song probably came out about 87, 88, right? Mm-hmm. LL was in his peak. Uh, Houdini was in their peak. Even what's that boy? Um, Kumo D was in his peak. So it's a good, good, good time. But you just showed us who you really like. You like that old LL Cool J boy. I'm, I'm, I'm going to mind my business. No, my, right? no, my sister. No, my sister was a fan. I, I was I was the Michael Jackson, but I was surprised. I didn't know Michael Jackson had a video for what was She's that? Out of my life. Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, it's, it's some, and I thought I was a fan. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's, man some, it's some old classics out there. But, you know, tell me about you, you know, because what I would like to do is kind of get started. You know, you have a long bio and I don't want to yeah. um, read that, but I would love to start with just introducing the audience to you. And we call it the origin story. Do you mind just kind of telling us, you know, who you are, your background, what you do? I know you've had various careers and you do a lot of work. Tell us about you, your origin story, and how you got here today. Uh, okay. Well, one of the things that the, a myth that people seem to have when they meet me is that I grew up with a silver spoon in my mouth. There's something about the title um, and the things that I've accomplished that give people reason to believe that there was a mother, a father, a white picket fence. And I don't understand the 1.5 kids, but that part. Um, in fact, my, I grew up as poor as you can grow up. My parents were very young when they had us and they divorced when we were young. So my mother moved us to Charlotte and where she single-handedly raised us. She, um, was a licensed paid nurse. And that means she had an associate's degree in uh, nursing. And she always said that licensed paid nurse meant low paid nurse. Um, but that's what that one job as a nurse and sometimes up to two and three jobs to provide for us. Uh, my father, when the divorce was over, he, the family was divorced. And, uh, so it was her. And so we grew up in poverty. Uh, and I don't know if how many of you know what statistics say about children who grew up in poverty as especially Black children who grow up in poverty. Their research shows that there are no good outcomes. But praise God, uh, when you are raised by old school parents who believe in the Lord and believe in a belt or a switch um, and believe that you're going to do what I say, whether you like it or not. Uh, But my mother did it by herself. And uh, she raised the four of us. And uh, uh, I have an older brother who was in physical fitness for a long time and had his own business. And there's me, I uh, earned a doctorate in special education. And uh, my sister, who is a consultant in in the business world, and then our younger brother who barely got out of high school, um, making more money than all of us put together. He has his own business. (laughs) He, he, He hated school. Oh my gosh, he hated school. But all of us made it. And then we, my mother lived to see all of her uh, grandchildren. Uh, I think 10 out of 10 out of 12 go to college. And um, two of them were in college. 
when she passed away. So you have a woman who was not degreed. She, to me, she was, she had an associate's degree, but that one woman made sure that she produced us. And now um, what a legacy she left. Uh, right now, my passion, my passion grew out, believe it or not, I started off in corrections. I majored in criminal justice. And I moved up to Connecticut where my husband uh, was raised, moved up to Connecticut, worked in the corrections, worked in the court systems. And I'll never forget, here I am in Hartford, returning to Hartford 30 years later, but I was in, I was going to Hartford courts. And every day I was the only black person sitting on the other side of the attorneys. So the room was filled, the courtrooms were filled with black, brown, and week after week after week, I would sit because of the position I had, I would sit and I would be the only black person who did not stand before the judge. Um, I, most of my clients, uh, my job was to uh, get first offenders. If you were first offender, and this was in the 90s, I don't know how much you guys remember about the 90s, but that was when drugs were big in the black community. And when you were arrested, you could have any something real small and you were going down for life. Um, but it was a big drugs were big in the black community. And during that time, I was finding that my clients who were largely black men. With each year that I worked, my clients were getting younger and younger until I was no longer going to the parole, probation, meeting with them. I was actually going to high school campuses to meet with school deans. That's where they were just getting younger and younger. And my heart broke because I knew enough to know if you're entering this system now, your life, your, the trajectory of your life has changed, even if it was a mistake. And for a lot of these young boys, they just wanted school clothes. That, I mean, that was it. These were good kids who just wanted a nice jacket. They wanted the shoes and they saw drugs as a very easy, quick, simple way to get it. And they were being arrested over and over and over. And uh, I remember <laughs> praying a prayer to God and this was the the one of the first times I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt he listens. I said, God, I sure wish there was something I could do um, to help these young boys to prevent them from getting here. Because I know once they get here, it's pretty much over. The next thing I know, and I mean the next thing I know, I was leaving Connecticut. My husband and I were going back to North Carolina and that's when I entered into education. But the field that I was in was working with black males who were identified as having behavior disabilities. They were in high school and many of them had records. But that was pretty much the beginning of me having a passion for saving Black boys in particular. Never knew I'd be a mother of two Black sons. Never knew what that's, that was like. But that two, three years in corrections, that's what did it for me. That's what did it. Awesome. 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 Thank you for that backdrop. You know, one thing I love about your story is how you 
it's you know sometimes people plan life and other times like you said you pray and you just end up in a place right mm-hmm. but then you end up in a place that's your passion as a mother of two boys I love the part of your story of when you moved to Charlotte and you began to see something strange with their teachers. Tell us about what you experienced with the education system and biased teachers and black boys when you move to Charlotte. Let me start by saying I was ignorant. When I was growing up, because we were poor, I thought that so much of the bias had to do with the fact that we had clothes that were handed down, clothes from Goodwill. So in my childhood mind, I was thinking if we could just dress a little bit better and we dress like the other Black kids or the other white kids, we'd be treated better. Now, for, that was a childhood thought that, lay, that, that stayed. But what I learned about the school system and what I still see It burdens me because I didn't learn it first and foremost until our oldest son was in school. Now, my husband and I are educators. At the time that we moved to Charlotte, we moved to Charlotte so that I could earn my doctorate. That was the reason. It was, I had been accepted into the program, been given a full ride. So that was why we returned to my place of growing up. And our oldest son always loved school, always loved school. To him, it was the most exciting place to go. He loved laughing. He would come home and he would tell you all these stories. So we get to Charlotte and and um, in September, he's saying, mommy, I love school. And, and I'm thinking, oh, great. I'm in school. I'm an educator. My husband's a, an assistant principal at the time. And so we're thinking we're all educators. Everything's honky-dory. It's good. By October, I'll never forget it. Isaac was in the backseat of the car and he said, I hate school. My heart, to say my heart broke doesn't really put into words what it was like to hear him say that. And it was not just that he said it. It was knowing that this child loves school. It was knowing that he was only in the second grade and he was saying this. And then the sound of his voice was as if he was exhausted already. So it was at that time that I started going to the elementary school, going into the class because there's no way. No, 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 no. Something happened. I want to know what happened. So when I tell you I made a standing appointment every Friday, I was there to see Kitty Green. Every Friday, I would sit and I would ask her questions. And I remember, I don't know how many of you have realized this, and I'm pretty sure there are going to be some heads nodding. But as an educator, I've sat in enough meetings where I listen to educators use what I call educators jargon. What happens is when a parent, especially a Black parent, inquires about something. They'll answer the question, but they'll fill it with all the jargon in the world. And the whole idea is to intimidate you so much that you feel stupid because you don't know what I'm saying. 
So you feel stupid. So you'll take whatever I say just so you can preserve your ego. When in fact, it's not you, the listener, it was by design. I'm going to use words to trip you up, to make you agree to whatever, because you don't know what I'm saying and you don't want to admit that you don't know what I'm saying. It it happens all the time. So Kitty, again, I go every Friday and I'm not kidding you. I was volunteering to chaperone, you name it. I'm showing up. I was going and teaching some social skills classes. Oh, I'm coming in this class to see what's going on. I sat in one meeting with her and she's using jargon. And when I tell you, it made no sense. And I actually kind of chuckled because I said that she does know that I'm an educator. And more than that, I'm earning a doctorate in this field. And I know she didn't say anything. So eventually I went from going in and literally asking questions and getting nothing to continuing to go in and getting so frustrated that when I would leave, I would go visit a a friend of mine who was also in the doctoral program. And I would be so angry that this woman dodged every question. In fact, one time she even said to me, and I'm a passionate educator and my husband, before he retired, same thing. I know my students. I know them. I'll never forget. I asked her, does he have any friends? And she looked, and this was around November, and she said, huh, you know, I don't even know. And I wanted to cry because I'm thinking, my son is struggling in your class. He says he hates school. I'm here every week. And you can't tell me if he has a friend. I mean, he and I mean so little to you after all of these weeks that you still don't pay attention to him. Um, I remember one Friday in particular. Well, as I was saying before, I had a friend of mine who said to me um, every Friday I would go to her place. And she finally said to me, Christina, why don't you start researching it? I mean, it's upsetting you so much. Why don't you see what the problem really is? And so every Friday I would leave Kitty's classroom and I would research for hours. My God, I would research for hours. I I mean, I had reams of information. And that's when I found out about things like low expectations and how the low expectations of a teacher can cripple your child's academic career because they don't expect anything of them. Um, That's actually one of the worst things you could do is not expect anything. Um, and so I, I kept researching and I'll never forget one day I went back and I don't remember why this particular Friday was so painful, but I remember leaving her room and I had a knot in my throat that I could almost still feel it was that painful. And I kept saying, just get to the door, but I didn't think I would make it to the exit door before sobbing. And I knew it was going to be a loud one. So I was really trying to make it to the door because I'm thinking this woman is still doesn't care. I've been coming here for months and she still doesn't care. And I'm still getting nowhere. And by this point, I'm talking to God on my way out. And I said, God, that's it. And listen to this. I said, God, that's it. I can't take anymore. Ah. Now, by this point, let me just say, Isaac, by November, December, I was getting phone calls from the school nurse saying he does, he said he doesn't feel well. 
And she would whisper in the phone, he's fine. I'll just let him sit here for a few minutes. But it had gotten that bad where he was getting out of class. It, it was just getting out of control. And the more out of control it was getting, the more I went back to school trying to figure out what was going on. But I needed this woman to answer my to care enough to answer my questions. And so everything was spiraling out of control. I'm going the more out of control, the more I go trying to figure it out. That day I walked out and I as I was walking, I said, God, I can't do this anymore. I'm tired. And I promise you what I heard back is, yes, you can do it and you will do it because you know what will happen if you don't. And I knew I had already left the corrections facility. I left there. And one of the things that I did, even though I was young when I started working there, one of the things that I would do whenever I would see a intelligent, well-spoken, handsome black man, I would say, okay, help me to understand what, what happened? How did you get here? And do you know every single one of them talked about education? Every single one of them said, my mom tried to, and a lot of them were from the city, like New York. And, and so they would say, you know, my, my mom was a single mom and, you know, I didn't feel like going to school. I just felt like hanging out on the streets. I just didn't feel like going and I got caught up. And because education school seemed to be the place that either kept you off the street or on the street, I knew instantly when I heard God say, yes, you will, because you know what will happen. I knew instantly what would happen. And so I kept going back. And when I discovered that, in fact, this teacher had low expectations of him, um, but it took until February. I literally was going from October to February every Friday. And finally asking enough questions. Now, the, the, the fascinating thing was that particular Friday, I just went there and I sat. I was out of questions. I just sat. And I'm, I, I have more questions for God. Like, why am I still here? Because you know she ain't going to tell me nothing. Do you know that day she went over into a corner and she pulled out a, a, a folder this thick with Isaac's work? And there were assignments where he had scores range, literally ranging from zero to 100. And I was asking her about the work and I noticed something that she would consistently say. She would dismiss the 100s and she would make excuses for the zeros. So I'm like, well, wait a minute. It, it, you're making, you're trying to make it sound like, oh, he worked so hard. There's a zero right here. But I just went through two 100s, couple of 90s, couple of 80s. And you want me to think that that zero is who he is. That's when I knew, okay, you don't expect anything of him. When I tell you, I began parenting very differently after that. I became, after that now, it's a little more intense. Huh? I'm sure my sons would tell you that if they were here. It got a little intense, but not only did I do that, but that was when I began speaking. I began going into churches, taking research into church, anything I could do to sound the alarm, to say, protect your children, your sons especially. Now, for the record, young girls are going through starting, young black girls are beginning to experience much of what young black boys have always experienced in schools. But um, 
by and large, it's still uh, black males and the stereotypes that teachers have uh, for them and the and, and no expectations, not low, but no expectations for what they're able to accomplish. And like I said, that can cripple a young man. And it almost it did significant damage to Isaac. It took us about three, three, three years of intense work. We had to move him to, we had to move to an apartment and a school district that we knew was a good district. We literally found the school and then went to find a place and um, went through about three years of intense work to undo what that teacher did in one year. Wow, wow, wow. You know, I'm silent and I'm speechless because I understand how emotional, how hard, how significant that was. And I love the part where your friend says, research it. I love research. I love data. And I love any problem that we've seen a lot of times. It's somewhere in a book. It's in the good book. It's it somewhere, is. right? It is. And I know what it's like to be a father and to see what you have seen and to be passionate about it. And people like look at you and they're like, well, why, why are you overreacting? Mm-mm. I'm like, don't y'all see what's happening? And they're like, oh, you overreacting. You hard on the baby or you this and you this. I'm like, whoa, do y'all not see what's happening? Yeah, what's happening. Right. So what I began to realize is what you say is really, really true is not only is it happening, but we don't see it. And if we see it, we don't know what to do with it. What I liked about what you did, you didn't stop at the research. You went from the research to identifying the problem to coming up with solutions. I described it. The research, you you said there is a significant there are significant issues that our Mm -hmm. children are experiencing. The problem If you do not go and these are your words, if you do not go into it with your eyes wide open, then your child can become a statistic solution. You begin to focus on ways to help black parents understand Mm -hmm. that they cannot rely on a system that is broken. I love that you didn't stop. So tell us about not only that work, but tell us about what I call the experience of parenting black boys, the joy, the excitement, the anxiety, the fear. Now you share with us some of it, but tell us in dealing with parents, what are some of the top, not excitement, but anxiety and fear that you hear coming from parents as you work with parents? Um, it really, it, it revolves around education. The only difference between me and many of the parents that I meet is that I research the issue so I know how to name it. I know when I see it, what it's called. But there are parents who know something ain't right. (laughs) Something's not right. They just can't put their finger on it. And as I said, when you go in to try to find the answer, every time, I promise you, every time I sat through enough meetings, where every time you will get riddled with jargon. And I want every parent listening to know when you go and you ask a question, 
and they throw in words and terminology that you don't know, you ask them, please explain that to me in terms that I can understand. And I promise you, you're going to get nothing. First of all, their mouth will fall open. Second of all, you're not going to get much because what they say was not intended to make sense. And it was not intended to answer your question. It was intended to shut you up. And like me, when I wanted to stop, now here I am, a seasoned educator, married to an educator, earning a doctorate degree. I don't have a reason to stop, but it was such a, the condescension, the arrogance, the fact that after months of going, this woman still was so arrogant that she didn't even care to show me that she cared. And it hurt me to know I'm still coming back to this woman and I'm sitting in front of her being disrespected over and over and over again. And I'm getting nowhere and she doesn't have a problem with that. What kind of teacher doesn't have a problem with that? But as I said, it was something that I was able to then put my finger on. I did help parents to understand that from that, when you put your child in a new school and that this was back in like 2003, I said to parents, when you put your child in a class, especially when you have a black boy, write down your expectations, sit down and have a meeting with that teacher and tell that teacher, these are the expectations I have. Here's how I, I'd like to, you can ask them, how can you help me? with my expectations for my son, because this is what I'm expecting. And I need to know how we're going to work together to get him to where we need him to go. And when we have that conversation, anytime you deviate from our plan, I'm going to call you on that, that you deviated because you knew when my son entered the class, what my expectations were. Um, and that, and, and so what I realized was if Kitty Green couldn't have any her own expectations, if she didn't expect him to accomplish anything, then borrow mine. <laughs> Here, take mine. I have high expectations. Let's share my expectations and let's work on those. And so whenever I, and that's one piece of advice I would give to every parent of a black son, you go in at the onset and you let them know in writing, here are my expectations for my child. Now, don't go in there and say, I got high expectations and your child never comes in with homework. <laughs> he don't bring pencil nor pen and he sleeps through class. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. My sons knew. One of the things they knew. I told them, your father and I go to work. And because we work and we're responsible, you don't have to worry about the lights being on. You don't have to worry about getting up and not having food, not having clothes because we're doing our job. Now, your only job, the only job you have is to go to school and make sure the same that you don't have. My boss ain't calling here. Don't have your boss from your job. Call my job because then we're going to have a problem. And so the boys knew. She is hard on teachers. Her expectations for the teachers are high, but my expectations for the boys were high too. And they knew if they came home and there was a problem, I would ask them, okay, 
I hear there's a problem. Now, the first thing we're going to do is make sure you're telling me the entire story. Because if I go there and I find a detail and I find out that you lied to me, it's not going to go well for anybody in there. Nobody. And so they knew that when I said I have high expectations, oh, they're high and I'm not relaxing them. I'm not. I'm going to communicate them to the boys. I'm going to communicate them to the teachers. And everybody is going to rise to the level of expectation. All of us. I was never off the hook. You know, I'm laughing because um, I know what you're saying to be true. Um, My son got a new teacher. And one of the things I realized is that last year, some weirdness happened. Right. And I was like, yeah, we ain't gonna do that again. And with the new teacher, I said, well, just so you know, my expectations is that he bring home all A's. And if there's a B, we're going to talk about it. That teacher paused and looked at me. And it's almost like something happened in his brain. It's almost like he had a, I call it, I'm an engineer by training, a divide by zero moment. That's that's (laughs) a blue screen of death, by the way, when the computer just freeze, divide by zero don't work ever in life in math. So the computer died, his brain died, right? (laughs) But that something so little got his attention. So I know what you're saying to be true because I've seen it. And I also know what you say about a boy losing his passion for school. I saw that with my son. So I told his mother, I said, hey, you have a passion for education. I have a passion for education. We owe it to our son to give him the same joy and the passion for education that both his parents, Mm -hmm. master's level of education have. So. It's complicated, but at the same time, I like how you make it simple. Tell me this. In your research, tell me about some of the statistics out there. You know, let's assume that, you know, we're not educators and, you know, what's really happening? Like, I'm pretty sure there's some disparities out there. There's some black numbers that are expecting black boys. What are the numbers saying about our boys that we should be aware of? All right. The first... And when I when I share these statistics with you, I want you to know that this is across decades with an S. And I'm talking more than 30 years. A trend. First, our black boys are the lowest performing we have in academics. They're not dumb. In some cases, they don't want to show that they're smart. In some cases, they're in schools where being smart is just not what you want to be. They're not being taught how to balance cool and smart. Um, And when I say for decades, about 40 years, they have been at the bottom. We are now seeing where Native American students, when academically, we kind of hover around each other, but we have students who speak other languages, Asian and Latina, who come in here, learn the language and score higher on assessments than black children. That's one. Uh, For decades, our children, and you see it in in, um, law enforcement now with the uh, case with uh, Tyree, Our boys, it's no different in schools. Our boys are the first suspended. It can be the exact same offense. A black boy, white boy, 
black girl, white girl, all four of them can commit the exact same offense. And research shows black boys will be given the harshest um, consequence. White girls likely will not receive any consequence. Black girls and white boys hover somewhere in there in between, but by and large, white children can do the same thing and not suffer the same consequences. Um, let's see. So we have discipline. We have academics. Um, another statistic that is um, alarming, and I shared this last spring, and that is research is showing that our Black boys between 15 and maybe maybe 30 are committing suicide at far higher rates um, and not numbers, but rates because we can't outnumber white boys. There are more white numbers. There are more of them than us. But when you're looking at the rate of suicide, black boys are exceeding the rate of suicide. Um, and it's actually a crisis. And here's the amazing thought thing. I will read this research and what I've found is that it is alarming. Um, and I guess my husband decided he wanted to get something to eat and drink. It is alarming, um, the crisis, but even though reports are in Washington, they're, they're reading the reports. They're not getting it to us. I was watching, I read one report that showed how we have um, more and more Black males who are committing suicide, but I've watched as the mental health commercials that were on, these mental health commercials were focused on white men and women. Not us, we weren't in them. Black males were not in them. It was amazing to me, amazing, that we have a higher rate, but we don't show up. Thanks for sharing that, because it definitely um, gives a lot of context as what's going on. One of the things that um, we definitely see in society, we see on the news and we see it happening every day. And as you talk about it, it helps me kind of think more. Because even though these things are happening, I never really saw it for my family. I never saw it for my son, right? But these statistics are important because it helps me understand how others may see our children. Not about right, but about the perceptions, right? One of the things that you said that, and this kind of is kind of leaning towards your book a little bit. And I just want to share one of your quotes, and I want you to just kind of tell us about it. You said, there is a fight going on in society, but we are not telling our children. But naturally, they are responding exactly how they should when there's a fight going on in society. And you say, for many cases, our black boys are dying because nobody has told them about this fight going on in society. Tell us about that. Tell us about what that meant and why you say that. Um, 
right now we have our black boys don't fully understand the extent to which systems really are against them. And systems weren't designed to treat them fairly. It's just not, that's just, you can't take people out of slavery, take them into Jim Crow, where you continue to treat them poorly, and then think somehow by 1965, when, uh, with the signing of the Civil Rights Act and the Voter Rights Act, that somehow magically we're going to be treated fairly. That same treatment, mistreatment, has just been passed down covertly. It went from overt to covert. So now you have black males who are not sure what's going on. They know something's wrong. They just don't know what it is. And when you know something's wrong and you know society is against you, but you don't know what it is and you see it every day with George Floyd and you see Tyree, you see all these cases. So something's wrong, but parents aren't saying anything. Now, our parents used to say it. They used to warn us, but now we're not hearing anybody say these things anymore and to tell us the truth. So imagine being a black boy growing up, seeing where you're targeted, but nobody's talking about it. And worse, no black parent is talking about it. That is the frightening part. Do you mind if I take a, a, a quick break for a minute? I just need to make sure my husband unfortunately yeah, yeah, suffered a stroke. Yeah. And so I need to make sure to he gets back him. to bed. And I see he's back at home. So thankful yes. that he's back at home. So we totally understand. We'll take a break and, and I'm going to just do some questions, but go ahead and take a break. I'm going to mute you while you take care of family. OK. Awesome. We're going to take a quick break. And while she deals with family, but something to think about. Now's a good time to start bringing in your questions, typing in your questions. The speaker tonight is talking about black boys. Not only black boys, but the nuances that we are seeing in society. Tonight's show is not about not giving attention to other children. It's about paying attention to some of the uniqueness that we are seeing with boys. One of the statements that I love and I know to be true, because one of the shows we did, um, we do a show we call What My Eyes Have Seen. It's a series. And on that show, Miss Betty, I call her, the speaker, she tells a story of how she grew up during a time of what she calls secrecy and silence. And during secrecy and silence, it was, we don't talk about Bruno. Secrecy and silence, it's the elephant in the room, we're just not going to talk about it. And I remember asking someone when things got really weird, when all of the social conflict and wars began to happen, I said, I'm curious about previous generation. Did you guys talk about these things or why did you not talk about them? And a wise person told me, well, we had hoped that we didn't have to teach our kids about these things. I love that response because there's nothing more awesome than a parent's hope. The hope that we don't have to talk about these things. I honestly don't like talking about these things, but one thing I've discovered, as a wise person once said, you can't heal what you don't reveal. So if it's in secrecy and silence and it's hidden and you don't talk about it, then as Dr. Christina was saying, how can these boys begin to navigate a society where they know they're being targeted? They know they're being treated unfair, unfairly. 
but they're only five years old. They're only five years old and they know it's unfair. That by itself is enough to make a child say, I hate school. Because children are smart mm-hmm. and they know what fairness is and they know what's unfair. Mm-hmm. So just to kind of get you warmed up again, thank you back. How, how's your husband doing? He's fine. Um, and, and, you know, he's uh, suffered a stroke a couple of weeks after we moved back to Connecticut. And uh, so he was discharged a couple of weeks ago. So after about five and a half months in the hospital. So it's been a learning experience for us both. I, even though I work with children and adults who had disabilities, to live with a dis- someone with a disability requires, well, it requires skill sets that I have and that I don't have. So I'm le- we're both learning and that's, we're both learning. Yeah, and, um, and thank you for sharing it's gotten that. better. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, when I rec- when you logged on earlier, I wanted to talk about it, but mm-hmm. I didn't know how to ask you. How is your husband's doing? How's your husband doing? So uh, I'm I'm excited to see that he's home. I'm yeah. excited to see that he's getting around, and yeah. we'll definitely continue to pray for you and your family because, like you say, no one was born with this knowledge, and such a change in family is real. So, you know, I can only imagine what you're going through to think about how do you shift your life in a different way? Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad that we actually raise sons who, and even in this time when they have, um, they have their own lives. I mean, they're grown 26 and 27. But our oldest son, whenever we asked him to come, uh, he he's able to work from home. And so he came up probably three or four times to help. Uh, before my husband came home and our youngest son said he wanted to come up from New York. And he said, I'm going to come up on Valentine's Day so I can make you to a Valentine's Day dinner. I just love the fact that we were able to raise them. So that they don't need us. They don't lean on us. But they can strengthen us. I tell them, I told them the last each time I hang out with them and talk with them. I told them, I said, I really feel like we we were selfish enough to raise up our best friends. They weren't our friends when they were growing up and they knew that. <laughs> no, it, it was it was really old school. I, I ain't your little friends, yes. Yeah, I ain't your friends. But now that they're grown and they're just amazing guys to hang out with, they're amazing. And the love and the care that's in their heart and the way that they want to give, it's, the sacrifice was worth it. All of those Fridays of going to the school, every all of that was worth what we see now in our sons. Awesome. Awesome. I got a couple more questions. Then we're going to transition to questions from the audience. So audience, do be getting your questions ready. Type them in the chat. Tamika is going to help me, um, you know, fill those questions. But a couple questions. We talked about the challenges. Talk about the opportunities. Um, I love this term and someone gave it to me. And the question is, how do we create a circle of safety for our black boys? And it's kind of a tricky question. So I want to give an example of something I've seen as a safety circle for black boys. This particular mom, she's a football mom. Mm -hmm. 
And in being a football mom, she's essentially keeps her son active, involved in football. And initially I was like, ah, you know, too young, younger than 10, maybe that's too much. But I learned something else. Is her son has had the opportunity to be around that same circle of boys. They go through, you know, trips together. They go through training together. They go through experiences together. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, they're developing the ability to look out for each other. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a good start at developing a circle of safety for boys. But I'd love to hear from your expert perspective of what you've seen when it comes to community or surrounding our boys with some form of safety in this world where the world may not be, you know, measuring them fairly or looking at them fairly. What are your thoughts? Safety circle for our boys. Uh, definitely a safety circle. I don't see enough parents doing that. I think my, I know my nephew, um, played in AAU and I know there's something about playing in AAU where these parents do, and their children do come up together and they grow up together and they kind of stick together. And there's a level of accountability that they hold one another to. And so I love that. They don't let each other fall down and fall out. There is accountability. Um, when there are not sports though, you don't see it. When there are no sports involved and granted it works, but everybody doesn't, well, first everybody doesn't have an athletic child. Yeah. And every kid child into team sports. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, what do you do with that child? A couple of things come to mind. Whenever I was listening to you, I was thinking about a a term in psychology called vicarious experience. And what that means is we children can go to school. They can sit on the bus beside a child, go in the classroom with a child, and this could be their good friend. When they take a math test or some kind of test or they do some reading, this child who sits beside me on the bus, I know this child. This is my friend. Well, when we take that test and this, my friend does better than I do. Well, that's my friend and I know I can do what he does. I mean, that's not hard. So that alone, knowing that I can do what he does or knowing that I could do better than what she does gives me what I need to to try harder. That's vicarious experience, being able to look around you and, and, and say, if you can do it, I know I can. But the thing that you have to be able to do is to look around you and have someone caring. One of the things that I tell um, parents as much as possible, because I know this is not always possible either. So you have the sports where keep them there. Don't have it where it's one year on, one year off, or this team this year and another team across the, you know, the, the city lines. So don't do that. Keep them there because that there is safety in that group. But if you can't do that, um, another thing that, that we did, because our sons were not athletic, and that was the truth. I mean, one is a long distance runner, but outside of that, mm, um, But what we did was, like I said, we found a school. 
that we knew, okay, we, we see that school over there. We're going to find someplace to live with that school. And we're going to have them grow up in this school system because we knew it was a small enough school system and a school where parents were act constantly active. So we knew, okay, that school is going to meet the children's needs. That's what we did. Um, if you can't do that, then all that means is as a parent, you're not, you, you stand firm, even if you're alone in it. That's what my mother did. My mother stood firm. The, the rest of the community, the mothers who were kind of letting their children do whatever, but my mother didn't play that. And it, it was so bad <laughs> that whenever the other kids in the community would set out to do something they weren't supposed to do, they would look at us and say, well, no, we, y'all know y'all can't do it because Lois will kill y'all. <laughs> y'all can't. So we didn't have to worry about bullying or anybody teasing us because they knew y'all mom is crazy. And so if you got to stand alone, and that's one of the things that, you know, we were blessed to be able to put them into a school where, you know, where there were mothers who whose job was to be a mother and to go to the school and volunteer. That wasn't my job, but that mm-hmm. was theirs. And that's why we put them there, because they had enough parent involvement that the teachers had to work at a higher level. But that wasn't enough for me. I was still my expectations were still high. And I did let my sons know. Oh, I'm crazy. Yeah. And if you don't want to see that side, don't do anything that have that side come out. And to, now they laugh about it. Now it's a joke mm-hmm. because things like um, their friends would say on a Friday night, let's go to such and such a place. And they would tell their friends, you know, my mom, if you want us to go out, She's going to have to talk to your parents. She's going to have to ask questions. And if we can't answer the questions, she's not going to let us go. So their friends knew if you want us to go anywhere and we want to go. But if you want us to go, you have to let us know at least three days in advance so that my mother can ask us all the questions and we can answer all the questions. And then we may be able to go. But my I, I was like my mother. I was that kind where I knew it was it was us. And it sounds cliche, but it was us against the world. Mm. And, you know, let me just say, I don't believe that the teachers meant to do it. I don't believe that they meant they they woke up with the intention of doing harm. But you don't have to. Be intentional. You can do harm anyway. Yeah. And that's what was that was what was um, that's what I saw. And I just didn't want our sons to become victims of someone's ignorance. I I love it. I love it. Stand alone. And one last question. We're going to go to questions. So to me, if you don't mind helping me um, feel some questions, because I've seen a couple pop up in the chat. Tell us about your book. Tell us about the type of consulting work you do, the type of working you work you do with parents. I love the title of the book because every time I read it, I love it. So this is the title of the book. Tell us about this book and tell us about how you work with parents. The name of the book is Socialize to Rebel, Changing the Course of Americans' Children and Youth. Mm-hmm. What is that book about? And there's a book currently on Amazon, but you're working on an updated version. Tell us about this book, Socialize to Rebel. What is that all about? 
Well, the first book, Socialized to Rebel, the first one really just, it, it really gives you a comprehensive view of what our children look like by our children, American children look like in our public schools. And I'm showing you what they look like compared to other countries. We don't really compare. We don't really compare because America still practices an educational system that was established in the industrial age. And it has not, that literally has not changed. And so as new issues come up, for instance, you're teaching children to, we call it in, in the field, we call it sit and get. You just want them to sit, get it, go home. You don't want to ask them anything. You don't want to engage them. You just sit, get, go. And, um, but they're still, that's still the system. The only difference is they add a little bit of technology technology in there, but it's still a system that is not designed to engage students. Um, and part of the problem really is, I'm not sure how many people know this, but politics govern schools. Politicians govern schools. Many of many of the initiatives that we have come from politicians and not educators. And they're initiatives that we're forced to practice. And as a result, you see where bullying in the schools, um, we have technology that has sort of taken our children into a dangerous direction. And instead of saying something to the parents, we're telling the teachers to talk to the students about technology. When we get to bullying, whether it's in person or cyber, we don't tell the parents, work with your children on bullying. They go to the schools and tell the teachers, here, put these posters up on the wall. You need to talk about bullying. When Michelle Obama um, was talking about obesity in Black children, and, and well, all children, and it was, it was 30 years of in, in obesity and overweight in children uh, from two ages two to 19. Uh, for 30 years, the, it was just trending up. And instead of saying to parents, hey, you know, our children need to go out more, they went to the school system and told the teachers. Now, this is the, this was the part where I wrote in the book that was almost laughable. There was a report um, commissioned in um, Washington that uh, basically named 10 things that educators could do to reduce overweight and obese obesity in children. 10 things that educators could do. And one of the things that we could do, we could model eating right and exercising. Now, when you read Socialize to Rebel, what you'll see is that Virtually all of the societal issues that we have, no one's saying to the parent, you fix it. They're saying to the schools, you fix it. So because the schools are dealing with so many societal issues, academics are not priority because we don't have time for academics because we're dealing with overweight, we're dealing with bullying, we're dealing with mental health. Um, it's a litany 
of things that we're dealing with. In even uh, in other societies, they have made it clear America's education system can't compete because you have your teachers dealing with issues that families are supposed to be dealing with. And that's one aspect of the book that I do mention. The newest book is another, it's kind of like a sequel to Socialized to Rebel, but this one is Socialized to Rebel, American Oppression and Consequence. And so basically I'm giving the, um, I'm giving an overview of our history and the brutality of our history. So I'm walking you from slavery and the things that were done in slavery by design. Number one, we were in, we were kept from congregating. We were divided intentionally. There were intentional strategies to keep us divided, to keep us from um, coming together. So we never learned how to trust one another. You divided the family, you sold the family off or sent them different places. So you divided our families, you divided our our communities. So we never learned how to fellowship and trust one another, which you still see that today. We don't really trust one another. We can have someone in a, a, a black leader come up and we have one segment of the black population who loves them, another segment who's wondering, hmm, Really? And then we have another group that hates them because we were never, we were here for over 200 years, intentionally divided, intentionally broken down and had fear instilled in us by brutality. Then you, you, you free us and the violence actually increases exponentially because now you're not a slave. So you're not worth anything to me. Your life It's not worth anything. So when slavery ended, there were more black, there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of blacks who were killed because they were doing better than whites anticipated. So there was anger, there was jealousy, and they created, you had so many massacres that occurred between, I want to say, 1919 and 1921 or 23, Tulsa was in there, Rosewood was in there, but what they were doing was they would see Blacks doing well. So they would create a reason to go in and destroy everything and pillage everything. And this happened, it wasn't just the South, it happened throughout the nation, uh, up North, um, and, and of course in the South, but you had all this going on. Then you had Jim Crow, where W.E.B. Du Bois asked the question, is it good for us to put our black children in white schools, knowing that they don't want us there? Can someone really teach our black child when they don't want them there? But then he also knew if we don't integrate, you're not putting any money in our own segregated schools. We're in cardboard boxes for schools. So it's it's one of those things where it's a double edged sword. And um, and so we did. We put our children in first. And the children. But it was an it was intentional that they go first because you could have more passion and compassion for children than you would black adults. I'm going to get 
what we need to get done. And that is get the fairness that we've been asking for and we just still haven't gotten. Awesome. You know what I love about the book title and you mm-hmm. explained it to me, socialized to rebel. And it goes back to our boys in this, you know, lack of fairness that they see from day one in school. You said, well, based on all of the stuff that our boys have seen, based on all of the things that our boys have experienced, can you not see how they have been socialized yes. to rebel yeah. against injustice? Yeah. It's something and- about us in our humanity that when we see unfairness, that even a five-year-old can know it's not fair and it's something in them that say they may not know how to protest or whatever, but they know how to say, I hate school. Yep. Socialize to rebel. I want to transition to questions because I know we got some in the audience and I know K Boogie got a nice exit mix for us. First question is from Jennifer. I'm going to read this. And Tamika, help me um, feel the other questions. I'm going to start with Jennifer because that's the first question I saw. Okay. And I'm going to read her questions. And Tamika, if you don't mind coming off mute and helping me uh, with the other questions, that'll be perfect. All right. um, question. Is it reasonable to even think that our sons can get an equitable education in the public school system? Or do we need to focus more on building our own schools to serve our children? Question from Jennifer. What do you think about that, Dr. Christina? I, um, I'm i not opposed to um, having our own schools. Definitely not. I'm not at all. In fact, I, I um, had the privilege of opening and running a private middle school for Black children. And I, I loved it. There was a freedom that I had. <laughs> that uh, there's a freedom that I can't describe that you have when it's just you in the room. Um, there's a, a there's a way that you can love your children, the Black family way. Um, it, it was just an amazing experience, but it's not always possible. Here's what I tell uh, parents. First of all, do not rely on the school system, please. Um, <laughs> don't do it. It's no. Here's what I would recommend you do. When your children at home, and and we did this with our sons, we had them in the kitchen cooking recipes with us. Because in the school system, when they're in elementary school, they're being taught how to read recipes on a piece of paper. Private schools, the, the really expensive ones, they have kitchens where children can go in and cook and read the recipes and experience it, then take the test that teaches them how to read the recipes and ace it. And so when you know that the test is asking them to read a menu, not McDonald's on the wall menu, but a real sit and dine menu, that's on the test. When you when you see that recipes, um, get going shopping in a grocery store and comparing prices, when you see that this is the test, then all you have to do to make sure that they get the best education is make sure that you take them in your kitchen and you expose them to cooking with a recipe and you have them actually cook with the recipe and to make it fun, they get to choose what they want. When you take them in a grocery store, don't hand them a phone. Don't say sit in the car. Don't leave them with a babysitter. Say we're going in the store. And if you can only do one thing and that's hold the grocery list, then that's all you're going to do. And when they get older, you can say, look, we are looking for this cereal. Can you read the sign and see where it says cereal? 
When you do that, not only are you helping them to think beyond the classroom and think beyond this sheet of paper that they're given, you're preparing them for these tests that they don't do well on. And guess why they don't do well on? They don't do well on it because they weren't exposed to it. If the only thing you know about a recipe is a printout in a, on a test that you get at the end of the year, you go flunk it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I love it. I love it. You know but what that reminds with them. It, Take it reminds them grocery shopping. It reminds me of the experience where a wise person told me, and I forgot about this, but this is old fashioned, but it's contemporary, right? It says, well, if you sit down with kids and play board games with them, I had no idea how old fashioned board games like Monopoly help not only reading skills. Yes. But social skills and communication skills and, you know, the joy. It's family time. It is. But think about the difference between a video or where a child just watches with no interaction and sitting down playing a game of memory. You know, the card where you flip yes. over the cards? Yes. They got to read. They got to match. They got to remember. They got to communicate. They got to understand the rules. Now, I'm going to confess, as a parent, I was trying to play memory with my son. He was too young. And I didn't realize I was competitive. So I got excited and started yelling. And the boy started crying. I'm like, why are you crying? You know? <laughs> Don't he know? I'm glad. You I know what? It'll bring, it'll bring ready. a lot out. It'll bring a lot out because I remember bringing out board. You remember Trouble where you the, push the bubble bell? Mm -hmm. I brought out that game and I found out you can learn a lot about your children, too, when you pull those games out, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not just yourself, but your children, those games to your point, And actually, that is a work, a part of the workbook at the end of the uh, Socialized Rebel. I show how those games that we played developed us, developed our problem solving skills, our decision making skills, developed skills that schools can't do today. Mm hmm. Because they're so regimented, they can't interact. So we grow from our interactions with wiser others. I grow by even now at 54, if I communicate with the right people, people who know things that I don't know, I can continue to grow. Well, a child sitting with a, a, a game system in, in front of them, sitting next to another child with a game system, what do you think they're going to get? <laughs> Well, who's growing and who's supposed to be teaching? Mm -hmm. But that interaction that you're talking about, where we both sit down and play matching. And so what you do is you sit down and you just know we're going to play with fewer cards this time. Mm -hmm. And you give him strategies so that he can practice those strategies. So now you have a wiser other interacting with someone who gleans from him. So he will learn from that interaction. And so when I say cook, read recipes, go into the stores, that's constant interaction, constant interaction. So I'm developing you while we do what we need to do. We need groceries. Awesome. One, one more question. And Tamika, let me know if I missed any questions. I went back and I saw one from uh, Kareem. And yeah, and that kind of goes along with the one from Tanya too. Okay. So I'm going to read Kareem's. If you can read Tanya's, that'd be great. Okay. How Kareem says, how do we help those that don't have good parenting skills also help them help our black sons. Oh, that's a deep one right there. And to make read, read Tanya's. And Tanya's goes along sort of with that. What tools can be given to parents to build their confidence in speaking to teachers to mm -hmm. advocate for their sons? So helping the parents. Mm -hmm. 
So let me start with the latter one because I'm going to need that first one repeated. But the tools that you need to speak with teachers to be honest with you, um, going in the way Calvin and I said, here are my expectations. I, I, I don't have to. I don't have to use your words. You use your words because you got degrees in them. But I, my job is to make sure that we are partners in my child's education. We're partners. And so I'm going to need you to meet me halfway and make sure that I understand what is required. But let me tell parents this. When I say the system doesn't work, it doesn't work because you have politicians governing a system and these politicians do not have degrees in education. So when you have people in charge of making changes in education who are not degreed in it, don't know anything other than they went matriculated through themselves, they can't make any effective change. That's why I'm saying to parents, here's what you can do. Number one, make sure that your children learn things like responsibility. Every school, the teachers are giving assignments. If your child, they may not master the assignment in school, but if they are learning responsibility, that responsibility is gonna take them far, 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 far beyond that worksheet. If they're learning time management, how to work collaboratively with other students, how to socialize. It's the social skills and acting, um, behaving, if you will, that's what we say in the black community, but behaving according to the standards there. So if you can learn self-restraint, if you can learn responsibility, if you can learn trustworthiness, if you can learn to persevere, those are the skill sets that the school is really good for. But the system, the education, you can do better by making sure that your child respects it. You're going to respect the teacher. You're going to respect the education. You're going to complete the assignments. You're going to complete them on time. You're going to make sure your book bag is packed. I need you to learn from this school, which, by the way, school is a microcosm of society. So if I can show you how to interact in this little space right here called it. school and how to get in and, 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 and function within it seamlessly and get back out, then I'm preparing you for society. But it. whenever I really want you to learn, I know, like I said, we brought our, first of all, we were too broke to take them anywhere because we were, my husband and I were in school all the time, but we took them everywhere we went. And we, we explained to them the, 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 what we expected of them in each and every environment. So you'd be amazed by just exposing your children to different things. Playing games with them will go far, far surpass what a school can do because they don't even allow children to talk anymore. You don't even get a chance to, to socialize. Do you know lunch period is like 25, 30 minutes? It's 30, but 25 of it you spent five of it just trying to get to the cafeteria. You so you don't have enough time to socialize. Mm -hmm. So as far as I'm concerned, as a parent, spend more time changing the thing that you can change, which is your home environment. Um, Gay, I, I was a big proponent for um, at the time that our sons were growing up, our oldest son wanted iPods. 
what an iPod, right? It was an iPod. Yeah, it was an, like that. Ear pod. Yeah. And all I remember was I knew enough about the human brain that I said, uh, he's going to have somebody else's voice directly in his ears. Well, I'll never forget. He took his iPod to school. His father told him, don't take it to school. And he took it to school anyway. Somebody stole it. Now, before somebody stole it every week, every single week, I would sit down and I would listen to the music and I would say, delete that. Delete that. When somebody stole that thing, that was the happiest day of my life. <laughs> one, because he wasn't going to get another one. And two, because I didn't have to listen to that mess. But I was determined that nobody was going to give a message directly into his brain that was going to overreach my message. I love it. And so the other thing that I would tell every parent, please know this. The human brain does not discriminate against what's real and what's fake. That music, those lyrics to the human brain, to the child's limbic system, that's real stuff. The violence on the television, I think we want to believe it's fake and we want to believe it doesn't harm because it means we would have to interact more with our children. We wouldn't have them babysat in front of the television. So we tell ourselves, oh, it doesn't hurt. But when I tell you the research out there on the harm mm -hmm. that these systems are doing to the minds of our children, the research out there is, will blow your mind. And I do know the only reason why this research is not making it as far as it should is because there's too much money too much money and children watching television and playing these gaming systems. But I promise you, the research out there is real and it's a death trap. Awesome. 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 Well, you know, this has been a great discussion. I see you at the DJ Infinite. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and your wisdom tonight. I want to say thank you to Dr. Christina, but hold tight. We got a freestyle mix from DJ K Boogie that's going to wrap us up. You know, I always tell people, you know, it's a hard a part of way how we digest these heavy topics. Let me give you the process. You know, we start with a warm up, right? And the whole thing is, I know y'all got big jobs and y'all busy and whatever, but I said, you know, slow down, slow down for a second. Come on into what I call the soul verse, right? You know, let go of that thing and you're going to step into a place where I call nothing but black excellence. Mm -hmm. Nothing but awesomeness. I tell people I was always smart. You know, my daddy said, you know, you stay away from the wild kids, whatever. Y'all. I, just, I don't know. I just like school, you know, so I know what you mean by liking school. And I do this thing where, I, you know, all of a sudden I'm like in this black excellence world, you get smart brothers and sisters. The doctor said, you know, we don't know how to trust people. So I go around. I don't try to be smart, but, you know, sometimes people recognize it. And instead of I'm saying, hey, you smart. I'm smart. Maybe we should work together. Dr. Christina recognized that. She like, wait a minute. You doing what? You teaching podcast classes and workshops? <laughs> Sister girl got off the phone, ordered the podcast workbook quickly. I was like, she don't just talk about it. She be about it. Mm -hmm. Dr. Christina, I am looking forward to helping you launch that podcast because I know the audience wants to hear more and more and more from you. And I can tell, ooh, girl, you can talk. I know. We, <laughs> go, we can't wait to log on to Dr. Christina's podcast. And in saying that, 
I believe that's how we're supposed to work together, how we're supposed to, you know, see things and work together and collaborate. But as you guys step into the soul verse, you know, we play a little music. We help you kind of warm up, let go of the world. But before we send you home, before you send, we send you back into that world, we're going to give you some good old music to kind of touch your soul. And we got something coming from K-Boogie. K-Boogie, you still there? What you got for us? Well, Justin, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I can hear you. How you doing, man? What you think about the speaker tonight? Man, great stuff. Because I have a son, man. I have a hard time him learning this new math and all this, this stuff. It's, it's, it's stressing me out, but I know the importance of educating my son and making sure he gets his um the lesson. And I want to say thank you. I appreciate the tips. I appreciate everything that you taught us. And I just, I, I'm speechless. I'm speechless, man. Thank you. Speechless. I'm not, and if I could just interject this one thing, I'm not a person who, and maybe by default, who sells. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that everything that I did with our sons and didn't do, every lesson that I learned through research, through experience, I put in that book, Socialized to Rebel. So the second half of that book is actually a workbook. And it helps parents understand how we sometimes by mistake undermine our own efforts. And so if you really are looking for ways to parent, even if you're just looking to understand what in the world is this thing called parenting, I would advise you to get it. And that second half, even if you don't read the first half, it's kind of researching on the first end, but it helps you to understand what your children are facing when they go to school. So that first part will help you understand that. But that second part is deliberately for parents who want to know, how do I do this thing called parenting? And it's based in scripture. Thank you for joining us at Southern Soul Livestream Talk Show. Join us weekly at soullivestream.com. If you're joining us live, we'll take a quick music break and then come back for discussion with the audience.